Chapter 12, Part 2 of Guide to the Study of the Christian Religion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Derek McLaughlin. Guide to the Study of the Christian Religion. Edited by Gerald Burney Smith. Chapter 12. The Contribution of Critical Scholarship to Ministerial Efficiency. Part 2. The Task of Theology. Thus conceiving the function of the ministry in the terrible religious situation of the modern world, the utility of the study of theology in our divinity schools may be estimated. Theology is the science of faith, of religion. Of this statement much more needs to be said than can be said here. While science and religion are both expressions and aids of human life, they are different in form and function. Briefly expressed, religion experiences, science calculates. Religion creates, science discovers. Religion ventures, science weighs. Science avails itself of concepts and categories and laws, religion of symbols and pictures and parables. Assuming that theology is a science, a practical difficulty at once confronts us. Can theology be at once scientific and ecclesiastical? From the ecclesiastical point of view, the aim of theology has been to clarify and increase the Christian's intelligence as regards the content of his faith, to evince the living power of the Christian religion, and to bring this home to bear upon life through preaching, teaching, and Christian communion. From the scientific point of view, theology seeks to be free from the control and needs of the Church, to be determined solely by the truth interest, by the impulse to know reality, and to regard no law but its own, and no authority save the compulsion of its subject matter. Since the second Christian century, those two poles, the ecclesiastical and the scientific, have never vanished, but it may be doubted whether they have ever been in equilibrium. Usually the one has been emphasized at the expense of the other. Indeed, theology is usually under a crossfire from both science and faith, disowned by science, distrusted by faith. One may recall its medieval dignity as queen of the sciences, as science was then understood, but since the rise of the modern scientific method, theology came to be but compassionately tolerated by the representatives of the exact sciences, doubted by many of its own representatives, and incriminated by the laity as the primary cause of all the evils with which the church of the present was infested. It was thought that in satisfying the requirements of science, theology betrayed the interests of religion. Hence the question became acute. Can theology be at once scientific from the point of view of science, and serviceable from the point of view of practicable Christianity? Is the study of theology a sufficient or even a suitable preparation for the office of preacher and pastor? Does theology destroy the preacher's message, lower the preacher's piety, impair the preacher's usefulness? Facing the problem thus fundamentally, one may be permitted to dismiss certain superficial or captious objections. For example, it is pointed out that the scientific study of theology in a divinity school has occasionally impelled students to abandon the ministry. Such abandonment may be due to the popular theology and nominal Christianity in which he was indoctrinated before he went to the divinity school, or the student, as was the case with Emerson and Kant and Hegel, may enter upon a larger human service than that which a local church could afford. Besides, the occasional abandonment of the ministry under the influence of scientific theology does not discredit such theology, 
if it is seen to be in general useful, any more than would be the case in the analogous situation of law or medicine. But if it be true, as sometimes true it is, that now and then a theological student makes shipwreck of faith, even this disaster does not constitute a decisive objection, since this is a world where such shipwreck is possible from many causes, one of them being the absence of sound theological training. Other objectors ask, why is it that so many students who have studied scientific theology cannot preach? It might not be amiss to inquire whether they could preach if they had not studied scientific theology. As a rule, the academic and technical character of the young minister wears away as the years bring him experience and maturity, suffering and sorrow of his own, sickness and death of others. His fault is more likely to be a neglect of theological study than a bad use of it. But we may pass by such objections and return to the main issue. Theology and Vocational Demands Let us assume that theology is, in method, a pure science, in purpose an applied science, avoiding the extremes of academic bookishness and of the narrow practicalism of efficiency. Let us grant, as the truth interest requires us to grant, that the purity must not be adulterated by the application. Pure science is free science, and, in Hegelian phrase not to be pragmatically flouted, has the theoretical self-end of knowledge. Now, by virtue of this very character of theological science, is there some service which it may render the ministry? A science which serves the self-cognition of spirit serves thereby one of the supreme practical ends of life, which is self-realization of spirit. Only an officially infallible church can do without the aid of such science. Ministers, like politicians, are especially tempted to debasement of the truth interest, to sham learning, sham religion. The great sin of ministers can easily be the infraction of the ethics of the intellect. Theological science is developing a fine sincerity in our relation to both theology and religion. Such honesty and sobriety of judgment are among a minister's best assets in our age of doubt. They go toward the formation of personality, which is at once the primary need of man and the main concern of all education. Should theology be restricted to the so-called applied, or, better perhaps, vocational sciences, as some divinity schools seek to do, a problem of no little gravity would arise. Would the new vocationally determined science be any more free and pure than the old authoritatively determined science? Is not a post-determined science, by an end externally imposed, as prejudicial to the critical occupation of the scientific spirit as a predetermined science by a cause or authority which proscribes freedom and dictates conclusions? Is the pull of an alien finalism any better than the push of an alien mechanism? If authority science gives doctrine and not truth, does not vocation science give practice and not truth? There is something here that should be borne in mind, lest we impair the truth interest, so inalienable to our highest life as students and ministers. Extremes meet, and it would be an ugly situation were authority and vocation to combine upon us in such a way that our natural impulse to know should be wounded and weakened. This evil may be avoided by honoring the study of scientific theology as corrective and supplementation of vocational science, ever inclined to deteriorate to an immediate and narrow professionalism. The Need of the Scientific Spirit in Theology But theology in all its branches, historical, psychological, philosophical, 
as pure science does serve the vocational ends of the ministry even if it does not directly and consciously aim to do so for one thing it is indispensable to a reasoned understanding of what religion really is in defining anything one speedily turns to see how it came to be and what it is for thus one knows a religious idea or a religious deed only as one sees how it has historically and psychologically emerged and what function it fulfills in a people's or an individual's life besides one requires to know the relation between idea and action in religion the order of the emergence of magic cult myth idea doctrine and their relations to each other especially does one need to know how to face the problem as to what is primary and what secondary and impermanent in religion it appears that religion is not exhausted as a short circuit to the real by way of instinct and feeling the science of religion shows that there is a deep truth in this most of the best things in life are rooted in instinct which is perhaps just another way of saying that we are still ignorant of their precise conditions and causes but religion if it is worth while is not merely a matter of instinct and emotion it is a legitimate part of man's rational nature the substance of religion is not in the ceremonies and creeds and institutions which have been built up in connection with church but in man's consciousness that the best part of him lies in his ideals and in his earnest and sincere efforts to realize these ideals it is the recognition that the spiritual center of gravity of his life lies not in what he is or has been but in what he feels that he ought to become the only study that leads us into this most needful insight for our work as preachers is that of scientific theology but for another thing such study yields impressive testimony to the human cry for god that cry whether joyous and triumphant or painful pathetic poignant reverberates from land to land and from century to century the very import of human history is its mysterious and universal urgency and awfulness whether it be the vague cosmological gropings of a primitive animism with its crass anthropomorphizing of duty and personification of inanimate objects whether it be the passionate searching out of concepts or essences by socrates plato and the scholastics with their confident assurance of the existence of an archetypal reality whether it be the blended love and fear with which the intense and mystical semites worshipped yahweh and dared finally in the greatest of the hebrews to claim divinity itself whether it be the masterful executive ability with which the medieval ecclesiastics sought to embody a spiritual world in a temporal even in a political hierarchy whether it be the refreshing directness with which the protestants sought to re-establish an immediate relation of the believer with his god whether it be the pathetic attempts of modern apologists to reconcile genesis and darwinism or the wistful admission of the man of science that he has scanned the heavens with his telescope and found not god whether it be one or all of these earnest and honest endeavors of man to understand his world and his own experience the study of theology makes us recognize throughout always and everywhere the search for the unity and continuity of the life and love of man with an eternal and fatherly god the value of this world-old and world-wide witness to the minister of religion is obvious it is quite the fashion in some modern circles to pride oneself on one's unbelief though why what one does not believe should be so admirable is not so immediately evident it is much more to the point one would think to pride oneself on the number of truths one had found at the core of current superstitions 
but it is only through the study of theology in all its branches that one acquires the judgment and skill to make such discoveries. How does the scientific study of theology equip the preacher? With these general considerations in mind, we may very well close by isolating for special remark those specific questions which were raised a moment ago. The first of those questions is the effect of the study of theology upon the definite message of the preacher. Biblical infallibility now abandoned, the idea that the source and certainty of the preacher's message are rooted in God's dictation and donation of truth is no longer tenable. The props that upheld him in the old orthodox days are virtually all gone. The easy gift of authoritative truth has been denied him once for all. The study of a deposit of truth must give way to the search for reality. The case is quite the same in this regard if one turns from orthodoxy to rationalism, which undertook to replace the finished and final truth of revealed and authoritative biblical religion. According to rationalism, the human mind possesses a priori a sum of theoretical and practical ideas, untarnished by the corruptions and contingencies of experiential origin, from which absolute truth may be easily deduced. A religion of reason, consisting essentially of the ideas of God, of freedom, of the moral law, and of immortality, supplemented the religion of revelation at first, but subsequently became a forum before which the truth and error of all positive historical religions were adjudicated. The task of the old rationalistic clergyman who expounded the parsimonious content of truth inborn in his own reason, and skillfully demonstrated its agreement with Christianity, was simpler and shorter than the task of the orthodox clergyman burdened with the study of biblical languages, with exegesis and harmonizings with creeds and confessions. But the intellectual and critical movements of the modern world have remorselessly demolished this naive rationalism. As to those innate ideas, John Locke searched the infant mind and reported that he could not find any of them. He found that ideas are of temporal and empirical origin. Thus their fixed and eternal truths were undermined. Kant followed with his proof that the content of the religion of reason could not be object of rational knowledge, but only of faith. The outcome was that the authority of reason went the way of the authority of the Bible. All finished and fixed authorities fell, even that of conscience, since it too was unfinished and temporally and spatially conditioned. Of all this earlier mention will be recalled. In all these ways the task of the minister grew more difficult, more grievous. In the absence of easy donations of truth from an inerrant book, he must seek and try and doubt and test, with an open and candid truth-loving spirit. The study of theology becomes more important than ever. This importance consists not simply in the ascertainment of the truth, but especially in the formation of a religious personality. Through historical and philosophical study of the dissolution of orthodoxy and of rationalism, the student recapitulates and epitomizes the terrible experience of doubt, learns that religion is ever-changing, ever in the making, and thus becomes personally prepared to meet the needs and difficulties of our age of doubt and transition and growth. It is not simply truth, but the truthful man, tried in the fires of critical theological research, that can win the confidence of our bewildered and discouraged religious life. Men who ask whether Christianity is final or transient, even whether religion is an illusion or a verity, cannot abide an answer from those ministers who have themselves never asked in anguish, and who cannot answer with sincerity out of the earnestness and courage of their own hearts. 
Reverting to the question of the influence of theological study upon the personal piety of the student, the possibilities are the dependence of piety upon theology, in which case theology could conceivably destroy or sustain piety, or the dependence of theology upon piety, faith, religion, with the reverse alternative to the former, or, finally, the complete or partial independence of the two. Representatives of each of these possibilities have been numerous in the history of the Church. In the end, theology annihilates faith. So the second-century Church maintained against Clement the Alexandrian theologian, and so Overbeck, for example, argues in recent years. Moreover, many a theological student feels as if the critical work in the classroom of a scientific theologian was a deadly assault upon his faith. Were this indeed true, there would be no help for it, since science cannot submit to quarantine from any region of reality that is accessible to examination, and since a faith that fears scrutiny is already enfeebled through self-distrust. For all the future, it would seem, the piety that resists research is foredoomed to atrophy. Indeed, part of the purpose of the study of theology is to subject our piety to the laws of survival. But while some divinity students make shipwreck of faith, a possible price to be paid to the right of science. The usual outcome is a destruction, not of faith, but of the inherited form of faith. As a rule, the student closes his years of special study with his faith purged and strengthened, and adapted as never before to nourish and hearten him for the battle of life and the fullness of service. Ceasing to be a quantum of past beliefs, his faith becomes an interior attitude of his spirit, which science cannot take away. The opposite position, advocated strenuously in recent years by Bollinger, is quite out of harmony with the philosophic temper and thought of our new day. Its thesis is that theory precedes practice, that knowledge is the foundation of practical piety, that knowledge of God is the prius of faith in God, finally that this knowledge is not traditional, in which case there would be no way to decide whether it was true or false, but demonstrative. It is clear that such a contention is a reversion to an obsolete rationalism with its theistic arguments and the like. Admitting, as a truth at which it hints, that there is an intellectual moment in the religious consciousness, still one of the great merits of scientific theology is its recognition that the way to God is not proof, but prayer, that we know God because we have faith in him, rather than have faith in him because we know him. Modern theology has probably done no more important service than to clarify this problem. There remains the possibility for which no less men than Kant and Schleiermacher stood, as have many Richelians, namely the reciprocal neutrality of theology and piety. Extreme as this position is, there is an important distinction between religion and theology, a distinction in form and function. Suffice it to say here that one of the purposes of the study of theology is to acquire a thorough understanding of this whole matter. Otherwise it would hardly be possible for the student to escape confusion and aberration. Failure to make such an escape would later yield the injurious result of misleading his church into a piety without knowledge, or a knowledge without piety, or an identification of the two, an evil to which the pages of church history bear impressive witness. The distinction, for instance, between the living real God and a concept God is vital to peace of mind and to the power of the gospel today. With reference to this whole question, it may be said that usually the candidate for the ministry, young though he may sometimes be, 
enters the divinity school as a finished religious and theological product, but that in consequence of his studies there he departs unfinished, growing aware that his personality, with its religion and its theology, are alike in the making. A divinity school that achieves such a result has fulfilled its function in the life of the human spirit. End of chapter 12, part 2 End of Guide to the Study of the Christian Religion Edited by Gerald Burney Smith